0: Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tau Foundation.
2: And now, ladies and gentlemen, a rising star in rock and roll. Please welcome, all the way from London, England, Elton John.
3: I remember when rock was young. Me and Susie had So much fun holding hands and skimming stones had no chevy and a
4: All right, that's a scene from the movie Rocket Man, sort of the story of Elton John. We're going to tell you more about it as we get into our discussion today on The Nose. We're also uh, talking about, we're going to go from light to heavy. Uh, And the heavy part is going to be uh, When They See Us, which is uh, uh, director Eva Duvernay's four part dramatization uh, of the Central Park Jogger case and the case of the Central Park Five. Um, Let me tell you who's here. Uh, Rebecca Castellani is director of venue operations and tour marketing for We Save Music. Rand Richards Cooper is a contributing editor at Commonweal and writes in the In Our Midst column for. Hartford Magazine. Tanisha Dugan is a producing associate at Theatre Works. And speaking of Tanisha Dugan, right now, uh, until June 23rd, uh, the play, actually directed by Tanisha Dugan, is being performed uh, via Theatre Works, although it's being performed at the Wadsworth uh, Athenaeum Theatre while uh, Theatre Works is being spruced up into an entirely new, wonderful uh, being. Uh, but uh, as I go around town and talk to people, I'm, I won't be able to see the show until its final week. Uh, but as I go around town and talk to people, people are raving. About this show, so uh, go and get your tickets uh, and uh, see. Actually, which is well, I won't even do a preview of it. You, you, just, yeah, you can look it up on the Theater Works website. Also on Saturday night, another nose panelist who's not here today, Carolyn Payne and I will be hosting, as we have in the past, uh, arts, art for AIDS. Uh, this is from 7 to 10 p.m. at Art Space in Hartford, and it's there's an art grab where you get a piece of original art by an area artist at the end, uh, and there's you know light hors d'oeuvres and all that kind of stuff you have at parties. Uh, and you can find out more about it and get your tickets at AIDS-CT.org. I always screw that up. Uh, That's Art for AIDS. That's Saturday night, Saturday night, and Carolyn and I will be your hosts. All right, so let's get going here. I think I've plugged everything that needs to be plugged and told you about everything you need to know about, uh, except now you need to know about Rocketman. Rocketman is... Well, Tanisha, you know it's not. I don't know if you can call this a biopic exactly. You know, it it is the story. Elton John himself has said it's not all true, but it's the truth, uh, which might be a good way of talking about it.
0: Interesting. I I didn't hear that. I you know I couldn't tell you if it's actually a biopic because I know nothing about that man's life intimately. Mm-hmm. Um, but it surprised me that it was a musical. So it's like a bio <laughs> yeah,
4: people do burst into song well i mean you and could, dance you, you could tell some things you're it's probably a certainty that he didn't at the age of ten or so play Saturday nights all right for fighting to a crowded <laughs> pub uh, in London. So I mean, probably there are things true. that that happened that just we know probably didn't happen. And yes, there are other moments where characters burst into song and and so I mean, it kind of rea- I'm going to stay with you for a, a moment or two on this. I mean, it kind of raises the question like, what do you call a project like this, or or how do you think
0: about it? Uh, you know. I guess in some ways it it is a a call like a calling of Elton John. I mean, the the show the movie is super campy, uh, it's super musical. So in some ways it feels to me like an an aw- a washing of who Elton John is. If you want to sort of get a sense of who this man is and how he came to make the music he made, uh, this movie is a perfect example of that. It, it's tonally Elton John, if it's not factually his life and. You know, you get to see the family dynamic and the personal dynamic and the professional dynamic. um, And it's all shaded in this campy, musical, over-the-top. I mean, even to the point where at the end they sort of show you – uh, photos of the movie stills and Elton in real life and mm. you realize that they've made some choices in the costuming that's even more over the top and more campy than it actually was I in mean, real you life. You think the
4: multicolored chicken costume in the movie <laughs> is more uh, I do.
0: Or like garish. the Queen, Queen Elizabeth, you know, <laughs> costume, which is like so much more fantastic than the one that he actually wore. Um that's I think that's the thing that I really loved and responded to. It's like, this is who this guy is. He's not Reggie Dwight, has not been for a long time, and this movie is really a, a tribute to the Elton John of his imaginings and ours.
4: Well, Rebecca, the movie also, I mean, it's all of the things that Tanisha says it is, but it also wants to be taken seriously in a different way. I mean, the framing device, for better or worse, is him walking into, in this Mephistopheles kind of costume, uh, walking out of Madison Square Garden and into a rehab unit, into a group therapy session uh, to begin talking about who he came to be, uh, the person he is. And that turns out to be a person who's in considerable existential pain. So I don't know. What about that?
1: I think the frame was one of the weakest parts of the movie. However, I think the the link they've created between childhood trauma and adult addiction was very powerful and very strong, and I felt the frame sort of, in a way, undermined that. I think they could have told that story without it being so explicit and trite. Um, But I do think the way they kind of excavated his relationship with his parents, especially his mother, who was, you know, your classic cold English mother who thinks feelings are funny and why would anybody waste time on feelings, was a really wonderful thing for a biopic to do. Because I think a lot of these biopics we deal with substance abuse is just sort of like par for the course of fame as opposed to unpacking that and and saying why – is that the case? I mean, instead of just taking that for granted and assuming like all musicians have a substance abuse problem eventually. And I think we create a very dangerous link between creativity and substance abuse when really I think it's mental health manifesting itself in a creative output.
4: Although the link between creativity and pain, I don't think is facile. You know, I mean, there's there is something there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I just think in general, musicians, Kind of, we we accept that as par for the course with most musicians. It's like, well, they're going to use coke and they're going to drink to excess and blah blah blah. But I think that this movie did a really wonderful job of of excavating why we see that so often in music.
4: So, Rand, I don't know uh, where are your thoughts well, going on <clears throat>
2: the film. Follows a pretty generic template of as a kind of bildungsroman of the uh, the the education of, of an artist. And really, if you put it side by side with Bohemian Rhapsody, there's there's a lot in common. Uh, it's the same time frame. Um, the while the mother may be formidable, she's absolutely cuddly compared with Dad. Uh, there's there's the overbearing patriarchal father who senses um, sort of nonconformity in the sexual orientation of the son, hates it, uh, resists it. Uh, doesn't want the son to be a, a creative person and then we follow through the emergence of the talent that goes hand in hand with a hidden sexuality that is actively suppressed um, both from outside and within. Uh, drugs, ruination and a kind of salvation. I mean literally it's, it's like the same narrative and and I suppose that narrative could probably be transposed sideways onto any any number of people. I, I found um, some of this – there's a great deal I enjoyed um, but as a whole I, – I, I have to say, um, I, I feel sort of, yeah, it was good, it was good, it was good, it wasn't great, it wasn't wasn't terrible, which is the worst position to be in as someone who's trying to write about a book or a movie. You don't dislike anything about it, you don't want to launch into it, but you don't think it was great. I grew up with Elton John's music, I remember the I- impression it made on me. You remember when rock was young. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and, and, and I also clearly remember thinking... A, I don't really know where to place this guy musically. Mm. His, his eclecticism seemed, and I think this does come through in the film, his eclecticism seemed, and his talent seemed to just skid beyond all kind of conventional categories of music, because so he could do a lot of mm. things, but you weren't sure what the central thing was that he was doing. And I remember back then all of his crazy outfits were bizarre to me, and I, I constantly tried to enjoy his music while sort of shearing off in my mind this whole circus aspect of his presentation. I didn't know anything about his gayness, um, and I didn't know much of anything about gayness. Uh, I just thought of that, oh, the guy wears, you know, weird clothes. But I really like Daniel. Um, and and the film does try to bring bring that together in a way that shows that it was all part of a piece. But I, I, I still... Um, I, I thought I, I agree with you guys that the the frame of the therapy um be, became mechanical after a while, and it wasn't necessary to tell the story. Yeah. and it yeah, also I,
0: I often wish yeah. that that they had allowed that, like, sure, let's set up the device because yeah. it's an it's an interesting and easy access point to frame it. But then, like, let it disappear and yeah. dissipate into, you know, something else or evolve into something else. I think it's interesting you talked about the suppression of his gayness. And I think that, This movie actually did the opposite of that for me. Um, In some ways, I was like, oh, he is the grandfather of this kind of performance, uh, this kind of performative queerness, and he showcased that queerness through his costume, through the sort of over-the-top... I mean, I loved when his mother was watching Liberace before she was going to watch him come on, and I was like, of course, because Liberace is sort of the beginning of where Elton John
2: goes, you know? Um, And he could do a sort of double-signaling thing, where he would have then separate audiences, you know, a thirteen-year-old suburban kid like like me, who was a jock who liked his music, that whole thing, you know, escaped escape me. I do
4: think until about seventy-three, though. He, I mean, it's sort of crazy, uh, but I think in, uh, until about seventy-three, most people were either in denial or just completely clueless about the idea of him being gay. Right. I, I think it took a, took a quite a quite a lot of signaling by him before people went, "Oh yeah, I guess so." Um, that tracks, <laughs> right? So. Um, I, I, I am told by – and we've all been told by our producer Jonathan McNichol that this is the first major studio film to uh, show a may, male gay sex scene. I don't see how that could be possible in 2019, but that's according to The Hollywood Reporter, and they're never wrong. Uh, that's really quite something. The sex scene occurs wait, – wait, wait a second. What? The first major studio film. To feature a gay uh, male, uh, sex like scene. Who made yeah, I was going to say it was brokeback. No, yeah, no I don't think there's a sex scene just, anywhere. And there's like, kissing. You know, yeah, there's kissing. I don't people are. There's the That's scene. not backgammon. Tearing each other's yeah. clothes off. So, um, so anyway, and it does uh, involve sex between uh, uh, Taron Edg- Edgerton who plays, or at least p- portrayed, sex between between Taron Edgerton who plays uh, Elton John, and Rob Stark, King of the North. <laughs> oh, King of the North. Uh, uh, and I will just point a little odd through line, which is that this. Uh, Uh, Rob Stark, whose uh, real name is Richard Madden, plays a apparently diabolical music music manager named John Reed, who also appears in Bohemian Rhapsody as a character played by Aidan Gillen, who was also in Game of Thrones as a little figure. (laughs) So it's very strange, a very weird through line. Let's hear a clip from the show. One of the things I think the movie does help me a little bit with it, I've also sort of wondered about the relationship between Elton John and his forever lyricist, Bernie Taupin. So uh, let's hear the two of them talking. Bernie Taupin.
1: Yeah. You must be Elton. Yeah, Hi. Well, it's mine. Strange name.
3: Oh. Well, you, you can tell me your real name when we get to know each other better. Right. Uh, um. Have I
0: was thinking... you ever? Uh, sorry. Sorry. No, no, please. See. you. I like your lyrics. Thank you. Yeah, I, I got the tape that you sent. It's great. Really good. Thanks. Oh, well, hang on. Uh.
4: Hey, yeah, don't bother with that one. That wasn't supposed to be in there. Not no, mistake. no, that's
3: really good. I wrote a tune to it. Yeah, Yeah. I... bought a song? Yeah. I read it and I could hear the whole tune in my head. It was all there, I could see all the notes, and I just had
0: to get it out. It's like my fingers couldn't work fast enough to keep up with my brain. <laughs> Do you ever get anything like that?
3: Uh, uh, not really, no.
4: <laughs> um, I can write more for you, though, Elton. I'll just send them down to you. Great. I mean, Rebecca, if you're interested in the creative process, this can't begin to explain it. But I, as somebody who was a, a big fan, particularly in those first four years or so, I mean, there was a way in which Toppin's lyrics were really different from everybody else's lyrics. And you kind of wondered whether, whether he was just lucky enough to blender into a guy who was going to, to a certain degree, rewrite what pop music was, make it more piano based than it had been since Ray Charles and Jerry Lee Lewis or whether he really helped trigger some of the creativity of Elton Jock. I wound up kind of thinking the latter from this movie. I don't know how accurate it yeah, is. Yeah,
1: I think one of the strengths of this movie is really shedding some light into Bernie's role in Elton's career and the fact that, you know, he was the one guy who really stuck by him through thick and thin and was able to kind of look past some of the dysfunction and the abuse that Elton was kind of you know spewing at everyone at the height of his addiction. Um, yeah, I think that, you know, you don't know until you actually are – in a room with these people, but I do think I get the impression that Elton was an incredible like musical genius, obviously, but he needed somebody to draw that out of him, and I think that that's where the relationship really was valuable. I mean, the lyrics are obviously stunning and, and something we haven't really seen, again, that sort of long-term relationship. It's, a, it's a, like a Lennon and McCartney in a way, but... You know Bernie's ability to kind of let Elton John be the star and sit back and just say I'm willing to take a back seat to this is really rare and amazing that he was able to just sort of let Elton spread his wings and be the support.
4: He's played by Jamie Bell, who I believe was the original Billy Elliot in the, yes. in the Billy Elliot movie, which is fantastic. another movie about some British kid trying to overcome his father's resistance to his departure from standard British masculinity. So that's a
2: thing. Britain's so yeah, what toxic. We, what you know the, the creative process is notoriously difficult um, to. To capture on film, and, and you know how many films are writers have you seen? You know, with back when there were typewriters, a typewriter clacking back, yeah. and then and then paper being balled up and thrown away. But this film really presents it as as, as a form of magic. Mm. Um, so, so we never see Bernie writing the lyrics. He hands these folders, yeah. these Manila mm-hmm. envelopes to Elton John. Elton John takes them, sits down at the piano, thinks for like twelve seconds, and, and then, our song. And then the yeah. melody song, comes. Yeah. And so it is. It is. I mean, I take that as as a as an as a shorthand and a metaphor, you know, for the idea that oh well, this is magic. But it, it comes across as literal magic yeah. because because nobody comes up. I don't think. I mean, in the same way in that early scene when he's presented, and I don't know if this is true to life as a piano prodigy. He's a little kid. He goes and and uh, and, and auditions at the Royal Academy of Music, and a woman is playing, you know, some classical piece. And uh, and uh, who's auditioning him? And then she stops, and he sits down, and she, and she says, "Have you prepared something?" He says, "No." And 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 then he just plays what she plays. She's astonished, and then he stops, and she said, "Why don't you continue?" And he said, "That's all that you played." So you know the implication being that he could immediately replicate. I think, that's tr- uh, uh, I think that is, uh, is true. Is, is that of biographically his true?
0: I think. Th- I mean, I think that's the the thing that pushes people from being talented and creative to really being geniuses, and. That is not unheard of. I I Uh know people who also have that same skill set, could not read a piece of music, which it seems clear Elton can, but couldn't read a piece of of music, but could pick something something up by ear, pick a classical piece up by ear and and let it happen. And I also happen to think, and this makes me think of Jay-Z, that Elton is also capable of coming up with a melody within five minutes. I mean, mm-hmm. Jay-Z famously can go into a booth and spit 32 bars of of rap mm-hmm. off of the top of his head. Mm-hmm. We now know that there is a combination of his ability to go into the booth and spit 32 bars, but also there's a crafting that happens right. that is probably less magical than those. But there's, I think what's interesting about some creative geniuses and the true geniuses, when we separate the word genius from people who are just hardworking craftspeople, is that, is that magical thing, that thing that we can't quite believe is true, but the talent, the instrument allows them to do the and divinity. Right.
2: Yeah. You and know? I, I wonder if you guys felt, uh, I, th- I think a, a biopic, and I do think this is one, about someone who's well-known has both an advantage and a disadvantage. The advantage is that we care about that person already. Maybe we know yeah. his or her music, and, and 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 that's a positive. The disadvantage is we know a lot of the story. Um, a, a, a film about a musician like The Pianist, um, whose life story we didn't know, Um, the Roman Polanski film, uh, engages us through its newness and strangeness. And but for me, I guess one of the one of the problems with this film is uh, it, it didn't, for me, supply any anything that I felt like I didn't already know just through a, a repeated cursory reading of, of stories about him over the years. And I and, and I think that that's one reason why, I don't know, maybe you guys found something in it that was, that lifted it to the next level for you. But I well, thought there was like a dutiful working through of a well-known life. Well, first of, of, of all, life.
4: most of the people watching this movie are younger than you and I are. Right. So they are probably going to, including these two pets
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think. I mean, you're right. I don't know his biography in that way that I could plot it along. But I also think that relationship between Elton and Bernie, that to me is what lifts the story. Yes. This idea that like, you need a partner in your creativity, but you cannot rely on that partner to carry you through your yes. life. And it's also unfair to ask them to do that. And I thought that was beautifully rendered in this piece, that you know, Bernie never never appeared to be trying to fix Elton. He was like, that is your job. Even at the end when he was like, please sit here with me at rehab. And he was like, no, this is your work. This is your work.
1: And he says, you'll always be my brother. And that's how the relationship felt. Like they really had, you know, that gets thrown around so often. It's like, oh, you're my brother. You know, you're my sister in arms and something like that. But that really did feel earnest. Like this was the one person that he didn't need to sit in a room with and workshop these songs. But they had their own creativity that was able to meet in this magical middle that didn't require them to do that work for each other. And I think
0: that he's alive because of
1: that. You know, Lorraine
0: Hansberry talked a lot about the loneliness of creativity, Mm -hmm. right? And so, and I think having Bernie allowed Elton despite all of the demons in his personal life, to not be alone in yes. his creation in a way that allows him to survive.
4: I find myself contrasting it a little bit with the series Fosse Verdon, which I'm going to talk, at the, talk about at the end uh, during our endorsement period. But sort of that's very much about somebody who is trying to fill – maybe you but about two people mm. – trying to fill psychic voids with – creativity which is the place that they are happiest you know yeah. they are happiest doing that kind of work they're happier there than they're ever going to be in their personal lives but that seems not also not really sustainable and it seems more sustainable i mean you know elton's been we are told at the end he's been sober for 28 years or something and yeah. he just seems like he has a pretty good he owns one thing that was left out he owns He's owned Soccer. a British football yes. team. Yeah, I mean, he's like – there's a whole side of him that's not covered.
1: But there was, was a lot that was left out in terms all of like – you know the all of the, pieces. All the straight
4: yeah. The <laughs> right. relationship
1: with the Royals. I mean, I thought we were going to go all into,
4: yeah. into that. I'm so those are the stuff. I'm the glad we died, weren't too. Right.
1: So, you know, one
4: thing – one last thing I want to ask about, and Tanisha, I'm going to start with you for what reasons that will be obvious. There's – OK. So I've never seen any of the Mamma Mia movies and I'm not going <laughs> to see them. Um, I have. So we'll start there. <laughs> but there was a way in which – I watched the trailers anyway and there was a way in which the little kind of mini explosions into song and dance in this movie made me think it's probably kind of a little bit the way those Mamma Mia movies are but I felt like this movie didn't trust that in a weird way. You know, There's a, just having gone to see a few musicals recently I saw The Prom uh, on Broadway a, a couple of weekends ago uh, I, I saw A Flamingo Kid at, at Hartford Stage there's something really fun about a lot of people dancing to a really good song and maybe one person out front singing. Singing that song, and there's a way in which I thought the camera backed away from the excitement it could conceivably have gone after there.
0: Yeah, I think you're so right, and I think they also they didn't trust the device of musical theater, right? They didn't trust the device that when the emotion gets so high that there's nothing else to do but sing a song. Had they really leaned Mm -hmm. into that, then and thus the camera doing so also, I think we would have been much more satisfied with it as a musical, but I also got the impression that they didn't want it to wholly be a musical, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Like, it did, I, somebody said, in, in, as we were talking earlier, that this felt like a music video, like an overgrown music video, and I think it it's much more of that genre than it is a musical, and it would've been better served as a musical because musicals are really great storytelling yeah. devices, and there's catharsis at the other side, which they were so desperately trying to have. Um,
1: Mamma Mia, you know, going into it, you're seeing a musical, and I think based on the trailers, I was shocked that it had as much musical theater cues as it did, and I really wish that they had leaned fully into it because it was the strongest parts of it was when they were yeah, reading.
2: like when his father sings yeah. yeah, but it sort of gestured at that, and then suddenly it, it it backed off. They did
1: that, and then again with Rob Stark, which I loved, and then we kind of moved away <laughs> from that. Stark. There was like a couple little like <laughs> snippets of song, but I really wish that they Rob had...
4: Stark sings Rob <laughs> Stark sings on Honky <laughs> Cat, and he he
1: sings <laughs> the Reigns of Castaway too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. He's it. not
4: on the beat. <laughs> uh, a couple of times, and I'm thinking, boy, that is—it shows that it was. We got to get uh, wrap up here pretty fast because we got to get uh, over to uh, our other topic here. But maybe we should just very quickly play uh, a little bit so you can hear Rob Stark, whose real name, by the way, is Richard Madden. Is uh, it though? Is or it? Richard I don't know. Madden. It probably is Rob Stark at this point. Uh, here he is as John Reed talking to uh, Taron Egerton as Elton John. What's this?
3: Hmm? Number eleven in Italy. The song doesn't work. That's the problem. The record's cooked out, M.O.R. And the problem is you have never understood me and what I have to go through. And you know what I should have sacked you when you left me? I am glad I left you. It means I can maintain some objectivity on yourself indulge self-indulgent myopic little world. Get in the studio, makes you music or don't. I don't care. Well, you will when your money runs out. Do your worst. In fact, take me to court. You signed contracts with me years ago, so I'll still be collecting my 20% long after you've killed yourself.
4: Mum. I think he should have called it Mum once in a while, the way he did in the bodyguard. All right, we really do have to go uh, in order to have time here. I I thought going out it might be fun. You know, Elton John is often very well covered. Uh, There's actually a a compilation called Two Rooms that has all kinds of interesting covers. This is uh, Tina Turner doing The Bitches Back. All right. We're back. We're in studio with Rebecca Castellani, Rand Richards-Cooper, and Tanisha Dugan here on The Nose. Uh, I will uh, admit that uh, when I first selected this um, s- series on Netflix, it's a condensed four-part series, uh, each segment a little longer than an hour, I think. Uh, it's called When They See Us. It's directed by Ava DuVernay. It tells the story of the Central Park Jogger and the Central Park Five. Um, you know, I thought, well, if you've seen the Ken Burns documentary and stuff, this is going to be that different. Uh, it, it's a lot different uh, and it's a very, very powerful series. I, I, we're going to begin. We're going to play a clip that is longer than probably any clip we've ever played here. And you're going to hear tons of silence in this clip, which we could have edited out. And Jonathan McNichol decided that that was wrong. Uh, what you're going to hear is uh, a moment where I believe four of the five boys uh, are – and these are boys. These are middle school kids basically. Uh, they are brought together in a room for the first time. Now, they are supposed to have been a gang who ganged up uh, on this woman. In fact, none of them knew each other. They were Few of them knew each other. They weren't uh, friends. Uh, they, a couple of them needed to be introduced to each other even. Uh, they have all been taken off by this time and subjected to relentless uh, 18 hours, no breaks for sleep or food or anything like that, uh, interrogations in which they're told the things they have to say if they ever want to get out of this situation, and they've all broken in various ways. And we've seen a lot of that happen. And, and now you see this awkward coming together after all of them have provided at this point confessions, confessions which are not plausible in many cases, conf- uh, confessions which conflict with one another in significant material ways. But now here they are in a holding cell uh, and they're talking to one another.
3: I'm sure. That's like, that's like Antron? Yeah. I lied on you, you man. I'm sorry Sly. Right? They're doing us like this. What other way they ever do us?
4: So, you're hearing uh, for the four boys Antron McRae, Kevin Richardson, uh, Raymond Santana, Yusuf Salam. Uh, the person you don't hear is Corey Wise because he was 16 years old uh, at the time that allowed them to treat him as an adult su- suspect and defendant. Uh, his case wound up beginning getting handled very differently. He and Youssef Salam were probably the two people who knew each other the best out of the five. But as you can see, there's a, not a lot of heavy familiarity uh, among this whole group. So, I'm going to let two uh, Denisha kept catch her breath after hearing that clip mm-hmm. because uh, – and I'll go first with Rebecca. I, I don't know. I, I don't even know where to ask you to begin. So uh, you pick your spot.
1: Um, I will lead by saying I didn't really know anything about this. I was born in 1991. Um, not that that's any excuse. I, I knew it had been uh, – I knew the facts of the crime. I knew that it was a wrongful conviction. But I didn't know any of the details. I didn't know how young the boys were. I didn't know anything really. I hadn't seen the Ken Burns documentary, so I went into this with, you know, really no former background. Um, I was floored by this series. It's really one of the first times I've watched a series and not felt like I could watch multiple episodes in a row. I had to really stop and think. I wanted to stop it during multiple times Mm -hmm. during the actual watch to process. I feel very disappointed in my years of education that this hasn't come up in a classroom situation, that I hadn't learned about this in any sort of meaningful way. Um, I feel very disappointed in myself and very complicit in the system of institutionalized racism that I haven't, you know, I'm I'm the type of person that will Google serial killers when I can't sleep and read all about true crime and all that. And the fact that I never thought that this was really, you know, something that was worth my time and attention. It was, you know, a really tough pill to swallow. And I think that the whole frame of this show, I mean, the, the, the title itself speaks volumes when they see us. It is It is for white people to grapple with, and I think this is something that black Americans obviously know about and have suffered and continue to suffer. And as a white woman, I think this was a series that was made for somebody like me.
4: I mean I I should say that uh, – to say the obvious, this came back to light really during the 2016 campaign when we were reminded of the fact that uh, Donald Trump way back then in 1989 took a very prominent role, took out a page one uh, ad in the New York Times saying bring back the death penalty and and, – in the opinion of at least one of the Central Park Five, was the person who most lit the fuse of, of racism, most stirred up the notion that these were wild, out of control animals and that had to be uh, brought into line somehow. They, I had
1: to Google that too because I was floored. It's like, really, Donald Trump is involved in this too? I just absolutely it was beyond I mean, that. You read my mind because
0: that's exactly what I was thinking about as you were talking about you were talking and you were talking about complicity. Um, this this came up as we were all asked to investigate the future president. And our news cycle does such a terrible job of actually shining light on the things that we should be truly considering Um, because that, to me, um, like any officer of the state, you would want someone who could truthfully and honestly to your person care for all of us. Um, And that is a strong indicator that he can't um and so i and so this sort of this piece i i I was a bad noser on this one i did not do my full duty i watched the first episode and a little bit of the second um because i couldn't do it um to myself um But I think you're right. It is that it is for you. It is for you three um, to be reminded um, to see this sort of state sanctioned torture um, that we allow on uh, young black and brown people and to and to really sit with that and decide if that's the country you want to live in and support and be complicit in. do what what do you what what will you do or will you watch this and say god that's a really yeah. crappy what a moment yeah. in time that was 1989 that doesn't happen anymore um and yet and yet and yet So before
4: you go, Rand, I'm going to we're going to play another clip because it's one that I know you reacted to as we were emailing around. Uh, This is uh, more from this is from part two uh, of the series. You're going to hear Trump. You're going to hear the reactions from two of the mothers of the Central Park Five. This is Angenue Ellis as Sharon Salam, Youssef's mother, and Nisi Nash, who gives a tremendous performance, as Dolores Wise, the mother of Corey.
3: Sometimes a black may think that they don't really have the advantage or this or that, but in actuality, today, currently, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a great, I've said on occasion, even about myself, if I was starting off today, I would love to be a well-educated black because I really believe they do have an actual advantage today. What is a black? I don't know, but hell, maybe he's right. Sometimes you gotta ask yourself, When is the white man going to get a break in this country?
0: don't make me laugh. They need to keep that bigot off TV is what they need to do. Don't worry about it. It's 15 minutes almost up.
3: They want to kill my son. That devil. That devil wants to kill my son. You gonna take an ad out about killing my son? They gonna have to come for me first.
4: All right, uh, go ahead, Rand, because you did you did uh, take note of this. As well,
2: um, this is a film that I would happily discuss for several hours um, because it raises so much, and I I admired a great deal the the Trump um, uh, scene, which is mordantly funny at first, seems almost like a tossed off irony because, of course, we know that his fifteen minutes don't end. The guy is now president, but it's very effective in that at a deeper level, it reminds the audience that. No matter what happens with these five, and they ultimately receive a legal reversal, but only because uh, uh, the actual rapist in um, steps forward and confesses. But they do, they do get restitution, reparation. There's a forty. They sue the city as a forty million dollar settlement. But the the fact that the Trump the Trump reference reminds us. That project into the future not only will despite whatever progress has been made, not only will things not be that different but the the biggest hater of all the worst is going to be the first so there's a there 's a backhanded way of of, of you know, reminding readers that um, that I- I- th- the landscape of race relations is going in many ways to remain as gloomy, as as terribly gloomy as this film says it is. But I want to go back to the first um, clip that you played when the boys talked to, to each other for the first time. And I think it's, it, it, it exemplifies what this film does that a, that a documentary can't do. People could watch the Burns documentary first and factually it follows with a couple of minor but important differences. It follows along in terms of establishing what happened in the case. But what the documentary can never do is add the human stories that she gets at. And the way that scene worked with the boys reaching a very difficult moment of private truth-telling, really the first time that truth of any kind has been told in this movie. And it's truth being told by them to each other. Under horrific pressures, they were browbeaten and physically beaten into into producing fabricated um, indictments of each other, and and for them to, as this somber music plays, to tell you know this awful truth that they have been forced um, under the worst kind of pressures. It's it's enormously moving and. And the film—I um, mean, a lot of times, uh, docudramas um, don't aren't able to do this. You feel like you're just following the, a, a, like the biopic, the point-by-point, dutiful uh, story of factuality. But this has a dimension, and you can you can track so many scenes, especially in the last two segments, that are are really so um, so poignant and hard. The suffering caused by the injustice that these that these guys were exposed to that. I don't know. It's,
0: it's. So, what I want to make sure we don't do is think that because they got paid $40 million, there's in any way arrest, uh, uh, reparations or, or rectitude for taking 15 year old boys' lives and taking their time, which you can never get back. And I would ask any parent out there, how much is your child's childhood worth? Mm-hmm. I don't how know. How much is my. Is. I would
2: pay every last cent that I have to. You know, <laughs> to be 20 years younger and I wasn't locked away anywhere you can't yeah. get that back yeah. Yeah. and that's what Raymond's father, played by the awesome actor John Leguizamo, says to him
4: the, the, you uh, never get it back I, I believe the sentences range from 6 to 14 years uh, 14 years for Corey Wise uh, who was confined, as you find out in episode 4, which is the most harrowing of the, mes- uh, of the episodes, I think uh, you find out the kind of hell that he, he went through, it's just uh, unbearable to watch, but you know, to, to the point that they're making, Rebecca, I think another thing that this Series does well. Uh, is you also think well when they get out things are better? You know they, well, no. you know, what, and when they get out and they're on parole and they're classified as sex offenders, they're they're Megan's listed. Uh, they are told. We see Ray Santana be told. Uh, I think he's the first one to get out that you have. Uh, to be in your house for, until 9 a.m. in the morning, uh, and then you have to be back in your house by 7 p.m. at night. That is your curfew. You can't even take a job that has a different set of hours. I mean, the degree to which their lives which are are the restricted. only jobs
1: that most felons can get. Right, right. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I didn't think that, and I don't think that. I think that even if this hadn't happened to them, you know, there's some level of imprisonment that Young black boys are in. I mean, mm. you know, there's just bias everywhere you turn in any whether you're a convicted felon or not. It's harder for black men to get jobs that continues to prevail. I, uh, I think, you know, Donald Trump's whole line about, oh, well, I would love to be a educated black man. Just that is, I think, how a lot of people think. I, w- I wanted
4: to make the point about parole because here in Connecticut uh, last – two nights ago, uh, a an election reform bill failed partly because one of the Republican leaders said that it allowed uh, parolees to vote. and He thought that was wrong. Parolees cool. shouldn't be able to vote. I mean I, I think if he were to watch this series or read a book like Charged uh, by Emily Bazelon, which is one of the great books of this season, he would understand that parolees are – in hell, basically, it is just an absolutely horrible. You're still position in prison. Today.
1: You're just not behind bars, and,
2: and very easily violated. This is too. one of the way in which ways in which I think the film clearly shows the 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 uh, what's going on in in the 30 years since this happened. I was interested that half of the film is devoted to the post trial. Uh, lives of, of of these five. There's a there's a scene where Youssef, who uh, is a, a extra, extraordinarily smart uh, person, is and now he's been paroled and he's at his barber's and he talks about what he might want to do. And the barber says, "You can't do that. You can't be an EMT. You can't be a teacher." He says, "Why not? You can't get certified for anything. You don't have that right anymore." And and he says, um, "You know, once once you've been once you've been inside, they got you." And they're going to keep you and, and li- lines like that and scenes like that and the fact that half of the drama deals with the post-incarceration lives of these guys shows very much the presence of of uh, of of critiques of mass incarceration that have happened in the past past twenty years. This film wouldn't have been made this way without Michelle Alexander and uh, and 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 the New Jim Crow. Um, it, it wouldn't have been made this way without Tana Coates, without the crit- critique of mass incarceration. So it's it's interesting to see that in part this is this is this is an updating based on on social criticisms that. Were well known to African Americans thirty years ago but but barely known to white Americans. We're kind of uh, running out of no, time ta- yeah.
0: it goes back to the complicity There is no interest in changing the system if you profit or benefit off of it, however uh subconsciously that is and is you know I see no uh will at this point to shift the barrel because that would mean a revolution of some kind, and who wants that? Right? who actually wants that well I, and so I, we'll, you know, I we'll, would disagree we'll with that this.
4: as a matter of policy anyway I mean there's uh, the the opposition to incarceration has now become a bipartisan issue the the idea of shrinking our, our prison population of not putting people in prison for ridiculous charges is now I mean there's bipartisan consensus on that and are we
0: gonna free every single person who was was uh, put in jail for marijuana yes, as we are building to. this this enormous marijuana business industry around the country that is centered on white well, men It
1: (laughs) literally only employs white men. That that
4: was part of the negotiation here in Connecticut. Uh, The bill didn't pass, but part of it was not only that, but the expunging of records. Uh, for people who had been uh, arrested for marijuana, that was going to be part of the legislation. I, I do think there's some reason for hope. I would encourage people to read the book "Charged." It, it has a lot of the injustices in, in it, but it also talks about this incredible prosecutorial reform movement, which is happening all over the country right now. Uh, things aren't perfect, but they are considerably better than they were in, in 1989. Uh, we're out of time. Then there's like all kinds of things we wanted to talk about, including the wild irony of Felicity Huffman playing Linda Fairstein and then Linda Fairstein's own post Netflix existence which has become a, a lot more complicated because of her role in pushing this prosecution she um, should
1: have gone to jail no like the, the
4: one the one thing that i do want to say as we head out here is one of the many things that duvernay does marvelously is use music uh, throughout this movie and as i was sort of trying to decide what song to go out of this segment with i had a lot of choices uh we're gonna go out with most deaths uh, umi says but uh the music in this movie is really really stirring
3: I ain't no perfect man, I'm trying to do the best that I can with what it is I have I ain't no perfect man, I'm trying to do the best that I can with what it is Today's show was produced by Jonathan McPants and me, Kion Wolf. The part of Bill Curry was played by Kiki D. On Monday, we'll be rebroadcasting our show about Marie Kondo. And now, back to Colin.
4: Time to make some endorsements here. We'll start with uh, Rand Cooper. What have you got for us?
2: Uh, first of all, two books about atheism. Um, they're spiritual books, and w- essentially one is pro and one is con. A big, thick book called This Life by Martin Hagland, who, who teaches at Yale. And it's a book about secular faith, which in his view is essentially a rejection of the notion of eternal life that's central to so many religions. The, and he believes that... Um, That everything that's important about human understanding is rooted in our sense that life is finite, that it will not last forever. The second book by a, a professor at London School of Economics is called Seven Types of Atheism. Um, and, uh, and and he goes through the history of atheism and purports to show that a lot of atheists are actually presenting a sort of inverted version of religion that it is they're thinking rather like people who who are religious um, so these are great books to read together one is like 113 pages and the other is like 900 pages um, and then the other thing since I've gotten the spirit taken care of something for the body if you happen to be down in southeastern Connecticut at all this summer there's a great restaurant in mystic called M bar which is in a in a converted Gas station right on the main drag. It's very cool. It's a sort of vintage throwback place. It's not that expensive. Um, go to MBAR. Tanisha.
0: All right. So the first thing I'm going to um, endorse is a podcast called Dead Ass with Kadine and Deval Ellis. It's wonderful. They're a couple. He used to play for the NFL. Uh, it's it's family talk, it's it's uh, life talk, it's financial talk, it's culture talk. They're adorable and fun. Uh, and I dig Hearing them. Uh, I'm also going to endorse Mecha Noodle Bar in Fairfield. I was coming up from the city and I stopped because uh, I thought I wanted Milkcraft, but next door to Milkcraft was this noodle bar. So I was like, oh, I'm going to go in there first before I have Milkcraft. And I had delicious, amazing ramen, which you can't find a up here Um, may, or I should say there might be one, one, of the, one of them in New Haven too. there's right? one in Granby and, that's and really good so, too but, uh, the one
4: even with that name I think maybe on Crown Street I'm it was sure. super
0: cute and then there was a picture of Mr. Bourdain who I s- love and they were playing hip hop music which was really funny considering the audience of people in the restaurant um, but I asked and it was the restaurant was um, founded by two friends out of Danbury a young Vietnamese kid one Dominican kid hmm. who uh, came together oh my gosh to, to, yes. see, the, see the name again Mecha, M-E-C-H-A, I could be pronouncing it wrong, um, but really great. And then finally, I have to endorse Sing because Taron Egerton is also in it. He plays the gorilla and he sings an Elton John song. And it is the same song that Rocketman ends with, (laughs) um, which just made me chuckle because I watch Sing on repeat at my house all the time. (laughs) Okay, Rebecca.
1: So my first endorsement is just generally for Phoebe Waller-Bridge. She wrote the first season of Killing Eve and has recently just dropped the second season of her fabulous, funny, heartbreaking series Fleabag on Amazon Prime. If you haven't checked that out, it is about as perfect a dramedy as there is. Um, So Phoebe Waller-Bridge, wonderful writer, actress, talent. I think we're going to be seeing a lot more of her as the years go by. And my second one is... a kind of a broad Elton John plug to really give the full albums the time they deserve. I think Elton John is one of those people where we know all the singles, we can sing the singles, but Goodbye Yellow Bick Road in its entirety is probably the record I play the most uh, on my turntable because I'm a good millennial and have a record player now. But its uh, it's got some of my favorite songs and the flow of the album, the highs and the lows that he's able to capture on that album is just really something special. So in, instead of just listening to your favorite, you know, Tiny Dancer and your song on repeat, I would uh, urge you to kind of really take the albums as you know, creative works as they were intended to be listened to.
4: All right, I'm going to quickly endorse the the actor Michelle Williams. She's so great in everything that I've ever seen her in that I now want to just go back and find see all the movies that I haven't seen. But what made me think about this was this series of Fosse Verdon. Uh, she plays Gwen Verdon. It, it's an uncanny performance. I mean, it's it's almost weird how good she is, which I think happens with Michelle Williams occasionally. <laughs> you just go, how is this even happening? How is she even doing this? So um, so and and that that's a little bit of a hard go because. Bob Fosse was such an unpleasant person that it's hard to stay with these this particular couple for all this time. Sam Rockwell's pretty good, though, uh, as uh, Bob Fosse, as you might imagine. And then uh, my favorite Elton John period from that incredible explosion, uh, album from that incredible explosion from 70 to 73, is one people don't really know. It's called Tuxedo Junction. Uh, it, it's... Um, it's, it's a very Western-themed one. They didn't release any singles from it, although at least one song, Amarina, uh, does appear uh, in the movie Rocket Man. So we're going to kind go out with uh, Son of Your Father also from that.